0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: This is
2: Cleve
0: with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, May 16th. Today, keeping count in a very crowded democratic field, a medical mystery on a college campus. And trash in one of the most remote places on Earth. So you've been covering 2020. Can you try running through all of the Democratic candidates for president that have been announced so far? No. (laughs) (laughs) This is Michael Shearer.
2: I have a web page I go to frequently at my desk to see the pictures of the ones I've forgotten, but let me try. (laughs) Former Vice President Joe Biden, former Congressman Beto O'Rourke, Bernie Sanders, the still independent senator from Vermont, Elizabeth Warren, the Democrat from Massachusetts. Those are the easy ones. Yes, Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg, former Congressman John Delaney of Maryland, Seth Moulton of Massachusetts, Tim Ryan of Ohio.
0: By my count, you're at like 10 okay, right so now, so I'm just, I'm just less than half.
2: On. Wayne Messam, Kirsten Gillibrand, Bill de Blasio got in today. Michael Bennett of Colorado got in a couple weeks ago. Amy Klobuchar, who I have also oh, not mentioned. <laughs> Steve Bullock of Montana. Hold on, I've got it. Okay, now we got Tulsi Gabbard, Julian Casper. See, this is, this is going to get <laughs> me in so much trouble with these campaigns.
0: Andrew Yang.
2: <laughs> Andrew Yang. Oh, Marion Williamson, the self-help guru spiritual advisor. Not counted in many lists is Mike Gravel, the 88-year-old former senator from Alaska. Cory Booker of New Jersey. Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington. Eric Swalwell, a congressman from California. Yes, Hickenlooper's running. John Hickenlooper, (laughs) (laughs) you know, celebrated mayor, definitely still running.
0: If I had known that question was coming, I would have been better prepared. (laughs) No, no. I think it speaks to the challenge of this race, that it's just so many of them. That's right. And there is no way to keep all of them in your head at one
2: time. And in a month and a half, 20 of these, 23 or 24, depending on how you count, are going to show up on a stage, on two actual stages. And even then, it will be very difficult to keep all of them in your head at the same time.
0: What problems does that
2: pose? Well, for the campaigns, it's been an enormous challenge. Every one of the campaigns says their strategy is to go to Iowa and New Hampshire and to meet people and to build a grassroots movement and do it, you know, house party to house party, rally to rally. If you're a New Hampshire resident right now and it's Saturday, you have seven house parties within an hour drive you can go to. And they don't know who they're voting for. I mean, like, you know, the, the overwhelming answer you get even from sort of diehard party activists is I'm waiting to see, uh, you know, how this all sorts out.
0: And it's funny because this is such a complete opposite from what we saw in the lead up to 2016 where people were complaining about how it felt like Hillary Clinton was the heir apparent and that there was this premature coalescing around her campaign and that It would have been more beneficial to have more of an open field. But I feel like the ideal version of that would have been like five or six or seven candidates rather than 23.
2: It's a huge contrast to last time where it was basically Hillary Clinton or not Hillary Clinton. And Bernie Sanders was able to step into that space and become the not Hillary Clinton vote. It's not clear if that's the situation we're in. I mean, Biden happens to be polling right now very well, but... Voters overwhelmingly don't have a clear sense of even how they're going to decide. Um even if they tell pollsters this is the person I would like, two-thirds of them say they're open to changing their mind. You know, the other interesting thing is that some of these candidates are struggling to get on polls. So most polls, when they ask who do you support for president, will actually start listing people off. And so some polls will list 20 or more names. And then you answer in the poll. But that would
0: take a long time to just have someone sit there on the phone listening through all 23 of these names. That's
2: right. And and to remember name number three when you've gotten to name number you know, 21, and you actually get a very different result if you just ask the question open-ended. If you ask the question open-ended, who do you support for president right now, and then wait, you'll get a very different set of numbers than if you start listing off the names. And, and I think you know, there's a lot of academic research about polling is that people at this point in the campaign are basically saying the name of the person
0: they recognize most. They mm-hmm. don't
2: know 15 of these people
0: and they don't want to not have an answer, so they'll just like say the name that is the person that they kind of recognize most immediately. That's right. So so
2: if you go back to 2008 at this point in the cycle through much of the summer and fall, Hillary Clinton was up 20 points, you know, more or less, in national polls. And we know she didn't do very well once the voting started. You know, she lost pretty soundly to to Barack Obama. So the polls right now are not the determinative thing. I think the the, the issue is, can these candidates begin to, to break through at some point? Starting in June in the debates. And going through the summer.
0: So how is this going to play out on the debate stage when you have all of these candidates and the fact that there still are not even enough slots for all 23 candidates? And then what happens going on to the primary where you might potentially still have a bunch of people still in the race and a lot of names on a ballot?
2: Right. So we're in a situation now where the first debate is going to happen at the end of June. The mayor of the largest city in America, de Blasio, the head of the National Governors Association, Steve Bullock from Montana... And uh, the senior senator from Colorado, uh, Michael Bennett, may not be on the stage, but a businessman named Andrew Yang will be, and Marion Williamson could be as well. You know, what's going to happen is that jockeying is going to continue after the first debate. There's going to be a, a second debate in July. All those candidates are saying it's not make or break. We'll be fine if we don't make the debate. It's a difficult argument to make. And then the DNC is going to have an enormous decision to make probably later this month or early next month, about what the criteria will be for the September debate, the debate after that, which could really winnow the field depending on how they do it. Right now, the barrier is 1%. You can't get much lower than 1% in polls. If they go to 2%, that could significantly reduce you know, the number of people who are at play here because a lot of these
0: names that we've mentioned are polling at 0% right now in most polls. And if people are not getting onto the debate stage, does that mean that they're going to just start dropping out of the race altogether or... I don't think
2: that'll be true for these early debates. But I do think, you know, if you've been on the debate stage a couple times and you stop being on the debate stage, it's kind of hard to make an argument that you're still really in this race with 20 other people. And, And so... I think that that will be a, a, a real difficult thing later on. Now, if you miss the first debate or the second debate, I, that doesn't mean there's no hope for your campaign. But but if you get to October and, and you've lost access to the debates, it's, it, it's going to be hard to get your polling back up.
0: But what happens if the primaries come around, and there are still 12 or 13 or 14 or 15 candidates in the race, and you have a potential where the person who's winning the primary is someone with like 10 or 15% of the vote.
2: Well, the what-ifs are are fascinating. Now, first thing to say is historically that won't happen. Historically, the field winnows for lots of different reasons, money, polling, people get out because it becomes embarrassing for them. But with this large field, you could still have 10 legitimate candidates, say, walking into Iowa, 12 legitimate candidates walking into Iowa. That creates a bunch of complications. One, if there's still two debate stages, it may be that the number two candidate and the number one candidate are not debating each other. They're appearing on separate nights. Two, the Democratic National Committee has a 15% rule in all of their primaries and caucuses, which means if you get less than 15% of the popular vote Now, this happens both by congressional district. And statewide, um, you're shut out of delegates. So you could have a sort of nightmare scenario here where say six candidates in Iowa get 12% or less of the poll and one candidate gets 16% of the caucus night result. That one candidate who gets 16% would get all of the delegates, would win 100% of the representation coming out of there. And you could get to a situation where Um, the crowdedness of the field starts starts preventing everyone but the people at the top from accruing delegates. Now, the result of that would be sort of the inverse. It would probably speed people getting out of the race because they would have less and less of a chance to win at the convention. But but yeah, there are a lot of weird things that start to happen if this many people continue to stay in.
0: And what would that mean for whoever ends up winning the primary and going against Trump? The fact that you could have a Democratic nominee who hasn't won a real majority? I think the
2: answer to that is it matters less what percentage of the final delegate count they get or the the total number of voters in the primaries and caucuses they get than in how divisive it is in the final days. Bernie Sanders really did hurt Hillary Clinton in the general election because the Democratic Convention was so divisive and there was so much bad blood even after she had secured the nomination. And, and so I think the question there is whether the party is able to come together or in the process of voting and going through these primaries divides itself in a way that creates bad blood. I think it's unlikely to happen this year just because one of the top things you hear from voters on the trail, one of the top things you hear from voters in polls, Democratic voters, is that beating Trump is the goal. Like we need to get that guy out of office. And, and that suggests that there will be a coming together and people will work together.
0: Michael Sheer is a national political reporter for The Post.
3: As a little girl, Olivia was just kind of a goofy, nutty little girl.
1: She was my question asker, always inquisitive.
4: My name is Amy Britton, and I'm an investigative reporter. My name is Jen Abelson,
1: I'm
5: an investigative reporter. Olivia Perigal grew up in Glenwood, Maryland, which is about 45 minutes outside of Baltimore. Test,
4: one, two, three, one, two, three. three.
5: She turned 18 years old in June.
4: We went to talk to Olivia's parents, Ian and Meg Perigal, at their family home.
3: I think I called her Livy mostly, although she had so many nicknames.
1: Probably the thing we called her the most was Fuzz. As a baby, she had just a little bit of fuzz
5: on her head. We went to talk to Olivia's parents because of events that unfolded last fall, events that raised all sorts of questions about the University of Maryland and the responsibility it has to responding to health crises. So Olivia was diagnosed in her senior year with Crohn's disease. The medication she was taking weakened her immune system and left her in a little bit of a fragile state. Olivia arrived at the University of Maryland
0: in the fall of 2018. And so, once she got to the University of Maryland, what were her first days like there?
4: She was really just kind of finding her footing as a college freshman. She lived in Elkton Hall, which is a dorm that was built in the 1960s at the University of Maryland. There are eight stories. She lived on the third floor. By the
5: time Olivia and her friends arrived on campus last fall, it was clearly showing some wear and tear. Within Olivia's first few weeks, the air conditioning in her dorm room broke. By mid-September, it became rampant mold infestation throughout the building.
0: Mold? Where, Like, where would she see the mold in her room?
4: The mold was everywhere. I mean, it was on... Blinds, it was on desks, all over their shoes, it's all over their clothes, it's
3: in the air conditioner. She was saying, you know, from early on, she said, there are a lot of people sick here.
0: Kids were coughing and having respiratory problems. Was Olivia experiencing some of those respiratory problems that other kids in the dorm were experiencing? Oh, she
1: was sick all the time. Every time I talked to her, you could tell she had some sort of upper respiratory infection.
4: She was coughing, she had a
1: sore throat, having trouble breathing.
5: And so eventually, on family weekend, parents descended on campus. So the university at the last minute scheduled a meeting to try to talk to people about concerns. And parents were furious and kids were crying about how sick they were. And hours later, the university announced a plan to move students out, rotating them out floor by floor while remediation was ongoing.
4: When she moved back into the dorm, what were you hearing from Libby about her health at that point?
1: Well, at that point... She was still sick. She had a continual cough. So there were a lot of
5: kids who continued to get sick. They were back in the same dorm where it was unclear exactly how extensive the mold cleanup was. So everyone just assumed it was the mold making everyone sick. They had no idea that there were other things spreading quietly through campus.
0: By the first week of November, Olivia's condition was getting worse. She had a fever and swollen glands. And on November 2nd, she went to the University Health Center, where she told the doctor that she might have mono. Later, she vomited blood.
1: She was just getting worse and worse and worse, and not being able to get out of bed, not being able to breathe.
0: Olivia's parents were still convinced that this was happening because of the mold, and because the University wasn't taking the mold problem seriously.
3: So we take her to Howard County General. They do a chest x-ray. And she comes back with a couple spots of pneumonia in her left lung. So they put her on the first set of antibiotics. So she's home, the early morning hours of November 7th. We've talked to the doctor. The doctor says, oh, she should be okay in a couple days. Give the antibiotics a little time to work. By the 9th in the morning, she sure as heck doesn't look any better. And we take her back to the Howard County ER. And they got her seen very quickly and immediately said, well, she's going to be staying.
4: They're proceeding to treat her as if she has some type of bacterial infection. You know, they're, like, loading her system with antibiotics. Meanwhile, they're running all these tests looking at blood cultures, and they're not seeing any positive hits for any specific bacteria that could be causing this pneumonia.
1: She was scared. Her lungs at this point were full of fluid. So we had a a lung specialist come in, and he wanted to to do a procedure where they puncture your back and drain some of the fluid. And again, hearing about this was terrifying to her. He was explaining the procedure, they were trying to get ready for it, and she ended up having a seizure.
3: An interminable. I don't even know how long it was. I and mean, they said the seizure lasted maybe about 45 seconds.
1: And at that point, they intubated her and they sedated her.
3: You know, it's like the situation that you see, you know, you have a big giant hose in your kid's mouth and throat but that doesn't even get to be the worst of it like how do you how do you think that it gets any worse but it it this
0: got worse olivia was transferred to the icu at johns hopkins hospital
5: she's critically ill she's fighting for her life and there are no answers as to what's making her sick as
1: uh, the worst feeling in the world not knowing what you were up against you just saw one decision after another not helping and you can just see
5: that the choices are running out. And her father, Ian, is still thinking in the back of his mind, like, this has to be the mold. It has to be related to mold. That's the only thing he can link to what could be going on with her.
3: And at this point, I call the university in general, just asking about the mold. Later in the afternoon, I get a call from David McBride.
5: Dr. McBride is the director of the University Health Center. And when they speak, according to Ian's recollection...
3: He says to me, well, I don't think that sounds like it's from the mold. However... You should know that we've had a couple cases of adenovirus appear.
4: <sighs> adenovirus presents similar to a cold, but there are certain strains of adenovirus that can be particularly dangerous to people with compromised immune systems such as Olivia.
5: And Ian had never heard of this and had no idea that this was spreading through campus.
0: It wasn't the mold though the mold may have weakened her immune system. There was a viral outbreak on campus. At that point, at least three people at the college had been diagnosed with adenovirus. Dozens of other cases were about to be confirmed. But the university hadn't made an announcement. They hadn't warned students or parents that this was going around. And because doctors had no idea that they were dealing with a virus, they had spent eight futile days pumping Olivia with antibiotics. What she needed was an antiviral.
3: Remember, what they've been treating all along is bacteria. This is a virus.
0: They gave her the antiviral,
1: but
4: at that point, it it was too late. The big problem that she was facing during this week is that her body was accumulating so much fluid, and she was kind of unable to shed this fluid from her body. She went into that hospital weighing 130 pounds. By this point, she's 230 pounds. She's gained... She's gained a hundred pounds. A hundred pounds over a week of fluid.
0: Oh my god.
1: She was bloated and I mean a- almost unrecognizable. So we all had on gowns and masks and just spent the afternoon and the evening with her.
3: We all took time alone with her. I remember telling her how much I loved her. How great a daughter she she is. <laughs> You know, and just kind of watching your daughter take her last breaths. And all I could think of at the time was, you know, I was there when she took her first breath. I was there when she took her last breath. And it shouldn't be that way.
4: She passed away late that evening on November 18th.
0: Soon after Olivia died... Jen and Amy entered the picture, and they started asking questions about how the university had handled all of this. Who knew what, when, and
5: why did they make the decisions to say or not say the information that was known? It became clear very quickly that the university had known for at least two weeks about the presence of adenovirus on campus, but they waited till the day after Olivia died to share the news publicly with the campus.
3: Okay, so this is this is McBride's voicemail to me.
5: And it okay, took so an additional day for the university to, to tell the community that a student had actually died from the virus.
3: Oh, this is the 20th. That's right. This is after the fact.
6: Mr. Paragall, this is uh, Dr. David McBride calling you. Um, I hope that um, you and your family are, are doing okay today. Um, I wanted to touch base if you have a moment. We're just trying to um, communicate about how to keep our, our students safe in, in light of... of um, adenovirus, and uh, we wanted to find out um, whether or not you are comfortable with us um, talking about adenovirus as the, as the cause of um, Olivia's death.
0: Does Olivia's dad believe that if they had known about the adenovirus outbreak earlier, that she might still be
4: alive? In his mind, the kind of last intervention point where it could have been a different outcome is where the information about adenovirus was kept quiet.
3: It's inconceivable that the university didn't release this information because her treatment would have been completely different all the way back to the second.
0: That's when Olivia had gone to the university health center presenting symptoms. The university had learned the day before that a student had been diagnosed with adenovirus. But when Olivia showed up, no one mentioned that to her. The university
1: did
5: put out a general virus prevention and flu prevention email. If you
1: put up a sign in a dorm that says, wash your hands, it's cold and flu season, I don't think anybody's going to pay attention to something as vague as that. However, if parents and families have gotten an email saying, we've had an adenovirus outbreak, adenovirus can be a serious virus, and we recommend that any child who's showing symptoms get a simple blood test. Clearly, had we had that information sooner, we could have told her medical staff what they were dealing with, and they could have treated her.
0: Why wasn't the university more proactive in sharing information about this?
5: So the first thing you should know about adenovirus is that there's no state or federal reporting requirement. So there are some infectious diseases like meningitis or the measles where if there's a case that occurs that you have to notify public health authorities. Anovirus falls in this sort of gray area where you there is no requirement but if you see an outbreak or you see a cluster of cases it could be useful to start notifying the public health authorities and potentially the community.
4: Generally the University of Maryland has said that they exceeded the legal requirements for sharing information. They have obviously expressed sympathy for the loss of Olivia's life, but they have given us no indication that they believe that they are in any way responsible for this.
0: Uh, Good morning, Olivia Perigol already suffered from Crohn's disease and a weakened immune- Three
5: days after Olivia died, Dr. McBride went on television to do an interview about adenovirus and the presence on campus. He was talking about what the university was doing to combat the spread of the virus. And during that interview, he said,
6: While we want to acknowledge that there are cases on campus, we don't necessarily want to stir up unnecessary angst.
3: The phrase, we didn't want to create unnecessary angst, strikes me. Unnecessary angst, what has more value? I mean, obviously, they don't want to create unnecessary angst for their own organization. It's not an unnecessary angst for families, because families need to know this information. The angst is their own crisis that they're trying to avoid.
4: I think it's a valid question to ask if there were concerns about protecting the university's reputation. We're aware through some of the records that we've looked at that they brought in communications officials in the Days where they're deciding whether to put this information out to the public. Were they strictly looking at public health reasons for sharing information or not sharing information? Or were there other factors, like looking at how the university's reputation would take a hit?
5: I had an opportunity to interview Dr. McBride over the phone. Like, what is the risk? I guess, what was the risk at that point of sharing that information publicly?
6: Well, you know, as I said, um, we want public health communication to have, uh, an actionable component. Um, and, you know, and given, unfortunately, that this particular infection doesn't have, uh, you know, there's not a, a readily available vaccination. Um, there's not an outpatient treatment, um, that we often see, um, communication, um, you know, particularly without an actionable item, um, stimulating a lot of anxiety um, amongst our student population and parents. Um, you know, we we didn't feel like there was enough at that point to, uh, um, you know, to share more with, with with the community.
5: One of the things that we discovered is that the university actually did have a playbook for how to respond to crises like these. They had an infectious disease management plan. And in that plan, it talks about the need to communicate to the community about the infection in question, even when it's of a low danger, low risk. This clearly fell into that box, and so we don't understand why the university didn't even seem to follow its own guidelines for how to respond to a crisis like this. We looked at, as well, the Campus Infectious Disease Management Committee plan. We sat down um, with Linda Clement, who's the university's vice president of student affairs. Um, But the university waited 19 days to disclose adenovirus, and so this seems like a contradiction. How do you explain that?
1: Adenovirus is a common kind of virus. Um, if we had a case of measles, a reportable kind of virus, then we would take different actions.
5: Because I don't think in the plan it doesn't make a distinction between, it just generally talks about infectious diseases, some are low risk. So you're making a distinction between the um, whether it's a reportable disease or not?
0: Yes. Okay. So did you ask this administrator if she felt like they should have done something differently or if they would do something differently if this situation happened in the future?
5: We did ask those questions, and essentially she said no.
1: You know, I invited some off-campus people to come in and examine our policies and our procedures and our protocols just to have different eyes on the situation. They confirmed that the way we handled it was well done.
0: Is this a problem that other campuses are dealing with?
5: Colleges across the country are grappling with infectious disease outbreaks. When you're talking about cases like measles or mumps, those are things that have to be immediately disclosed. But there are a host of other infectious diseases that can be really damaging to individuals that at the end of the day, the universities have the discretion to decide whether or not to tell people and how to tell people. And I think the questions raised here go to the heart of, is information empowering? Could that information have changed the course of what happened here, in which one student died and more than 40 were sickened. The University of Maryland appears to be one of the first to really deal with an adenovirus outbreak, but I don't think that they're going to be the last.
0: Jen Abelson and Amy Britton are investigative reporters for The Post. And now one more thing about how trash showed up in one of the most remote places on Earth.
6: The Mariana Trench is this deep, deep trench sort of near Guam. And at the southern end of the Mariana Trench is this deeper crevice. It's called Challenger Deep. Fewer people have been to the bottom of that crevice than have walked on the surface of the moon.
0: Reese Thibault is a reporter at The Post
6: write a little bit of everything about
0: everywhere. Everywhere, including the bottom of the ocean. And recently, a man named Victor Vescovo became one of the very few people to actually make it to Challenger Deep in a submarine.
2: It seemed very pristine, uh, almost like a moonscape. And I did see life. But as I continued going along the bottom, cruising around, I did see what appeared to be one or two particles of man-made
3: matter. And one of them had what looked like a letter on it, printed. So they were August contamination. There's trash all over the ocean. There's there's
6: so much of it. And and you may have seen pictures of trash islands swirling around in the Pacific. That's just the trash you can see. But underneath, there are all these little microparticles particles. And they're just swirling around in the ocean, and sometimes bigger pieces reach these, these remote places as well.
0: Vescovo's journey to Challenger Deep broke the record for the deepest dive in history. He even discovered a few new species. But it was striking finding trash in a place that almost no humans had visited.
6: They discovered these new creatures, but also couldn't escape the waste that humans are creating.
0: Reese Tebow is a general assignment reporter for the Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in this episode by going to PostReports.com or join in on the conversation online. I'm at Martine Powers, and we tweet about the show using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.